Well, good morning. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us online. And please turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. And if you're in the room here and do not have a Bible, uh, just raise your hand. Uh, Nate or Richard or somebody will get a Bible to you and turn to page 542. It helps so much if you're following along in the scripture. This will, this will uh, I think, uh, have a lot more clarity for you. 542, Ecclesiastes chapter 6 today. Have you ever noticed yourself getting crabby when you're getting hungry? Uh, we certainly notice it in, uh, in babies, you know. Uh, oh, that's right. He, she hasn't eaten for a while, and it's true, I think, for adults as well. Uh, one of the reasons in the second service, I kind of keep my eye on that clock because anything after noon, you know, and people aren't, uh, are, they're thinking about food, I, I've, got a, I've got a feeling. Um, let's broaden this and reverse the logic. If being hungry can make you crabby, if we're crabby or angry, could it be that we're empty? And is the reason why there is so much anger because of a spiritual, emotional emptiness? Indeed, there's a lot of different triggers, especially this past year, for why people might be angry and frustrated. But is what we're seeing simply uh, just a, a coming to the surface of an underlying emptiness that has been there for a long time? In 1965, Mick Jagger released the song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Sorry if you're going to be humming that all day now. Jagger had it all, money, girls, fame. So why did he write about no satisfaction? One time in an interview, he said this, Satisfaction, that's the song, Satisfaction was my view of the world, my frustration with everything, my disgust with America, its advertising, and the constant barrage. I'd say he was angry about everything because everything left him empty. As we read chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes today, we're really looking at a somewhat parallel situation as King Solomon is writing 3,000 years later. And we know from the story of Solomon in 1 Kings 1 through 10 and, and his own words in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2 earlier that he had all that. And he found it empty. And I think in chapter 6 we discover why. Chapter 6, verse 1, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them, and the stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. So the reference to a stranger can mean that actually in some cases when you die, you're, it's not even your own family that gets your stuff. But clearly all financial wealth, he's made this point, all financial wealth stays on this planet. He has bemoaned that earlier already in this study. 
But the key phrase is that God does not enable or give the ability to enjoy these things to some people. It makes us ask the question, well, why is that? We know that there are many celebrities, uh, sports stars, entertainment, political people who might have all these things, wealth, possessions, honor, fame, and yet it's almost cliché how many times you, you read that a celebrity is either going through a divorce or going into drug rehab or involved in a lawsuit or something like that. And so there's plenty of people who have all these things that the world offers and they don't have joy. But why is that? It says God does not enable them to enjoy. Is, this, is it God's fault that he doesn't give it to them? Is, is this somehow saying there's like a divine lottery that... Uh, Okay, you can enjoy it, you can enjoy it, you can't enjoy it, you can't... Is that what it's saying? Is it God's fault? And yet, clearly, that's not been the message of Solomon throughout the the, the book of Ecclesiastes because his own story is that what created the emptiness for him is probably very much tied to what happened to him spiritually. Because he had all this stuff, 1 Kings 1 through 10, but you come to 1 Kings 11 and you find that he had done the very thing that God warned him not to do. He had taken many wives and they had led him to idolatry himself. And then God said, because of you have rebelled against me, I'm going to take some of your kingdom away from you. And that indeed happened in the next generation, his son Rehoboam. And 10 of the 12 tribes were taken. And, and he said, I'm going to allow your enemies to come against you. And that happened even in Solomon's day. And so it wasn't God's fault, was it? But rather, he could not enjoy what he had because of his resistance and his rebellion against God. God cannot give enjoyment We will not experience joy if we are resisting or rebelling against God. So who does get the enjoyment? Already Solomon has uh, answered that question at a couple of high points in this book. We've described how there are some cycles of logic that uh, are found throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. So chapter 2, verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is, what's the source? From the hand of God. For without him who can eat or find enjoyment, but to the person who pleases him, circle that, to the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. Joy does not come on the basis of some divine lottery. It comes as a gift from God to those who live life to please him. Or at the end of the second cycle of the book, at the end of chapter 5, we looked at this one last week. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them and to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. In our passage today, chapter 6, is starting yet another cycle of the same logic. He keeps building on this. And at the end of the section that we are just embarking on tonight, today, it says this, I commend, he doesn't criticize, I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of their life that God has given them under the sun. 
So, so you know, sometimes we, we read the Bible and we look at a certain verse or we could just, if you, if you would take chapter 6 and this was your morning devotional reading, you'd kind of go, wow, God's word is really depressing. And yet that's not the situation at all if we look at the book as a whole. And so this might be a good time to just kind of help us understand how to read Scripture. You always need to read Scripture, not just that verse, but the verses around it, not just the verses around it, but the larger section, and really to understand what the whole book is about. So let's just summarize in this little chart. I have it at the back if you want to pick up a copy. But if this might help you, it's a, it's a bit of a simplistic look at the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 1 and 2, how empty life can be, Solomon writes, keeping in mind he writes this at the end of his life, having been chastened, I think, by his own circumstances and attitudes and spiritual downfall. But he says life is empty, but what we just read is that when we live grateful for life from God, live with God and live for God, then he gives joy. That was the first of those passages. And so there is joy. But then he again describes empty living in various ways in chapters 3 through 5, but it ends with that passage we looked at last week. Again, emphasizing God gives joy. And so now as we're looking at this section, we see again he starts in chapter 6 with this empty issue, but he's going to transition to saying, so in light of God's plan of just this is, what, this is how it works. How do we live wisely? And so we will find at the end of this section, though, that he still commends joy. And then the final section of the book will describe this kind of wise living in light of, of the emptiness of everything else and that joy is found only through him. What ought we to do? How do we focus our lives? And the answer is very clearly found in the last two verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commandments. And if we are living any other way, we will experience this deep emptiness. And with it comes so many other forms of chaos and emotional disturbances and anger and loss of joy in our life. So, back to verses 1 and 2, we rethink to apply and we start to understand why the world is so empty when joy is only found by pleasing God, living to please God. It's, it's easy enough to pick on the celebrities that, you know, they live this kind of self-indulgent life and so they end up with all these problems. But the real question we have to ask is whether we're any different. They have been more successful at getting what we all long for. But are we any different? If we're not experiencing joy, why is that? Understandably, the weight of hard times, personal trials, is going to dampen our experience emotionally of joy. The happiness factor will be down in anyone's life, even as we seek to follow God. Everybody gets that. But here's what's different about the person who is following Christ and seeking to please him, is that God begins to build in us a deeper sense of joy that goes way beyond circumstances. And so Paul would write in Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice, what is the next words? In the Lord. And again I say rejoice. Where was Paul when he wrote that? In prison. Philippians is all about joy, and yet it's written at a place of unjust imprisonment. 
and to begin to understand what he, when he talks about contentment and other these other issues, the same issues that we find in Ecclesiastes, we see that the source of joy is only going to be from God. So who needs to understand chapter 6 and the empty life without God? Well, everybody. The unbeliever does. Because kind of, you could say almost innocently, they don't know better. They're seeking joy and all these other things. But Christ followers at Open Door Bible Church, we need this too. Because we are all tempted to try to find those things. And so we are lacking joy because we are deceived, distracted by other things. Wealth, verse 2. Honor. Oh, we long for recognition. I mean, it's a, it's a lifelong thing. The little one-year-old taking the first steps, and we clap, and it's a good thing. But, you know, we just build this inner craving we have that somebody would recognize us, somebody would honor us, somebody would uh, give their approval to us. But will it give joy? It's just, no, it's a meaningless, grievous evil. So we have to keep remembering the high points of Ecclesiastes. Joy is find, found only in God. And is that where we're seeking it? In the 1840s and 50s, there was a gold rush to California. Why was there no gold rush to Wisconsin or Kansas? There was no gold. But the prospectors and the wannabes all headed for where there was supposedly some gold. And yet sometimes I think we're like those prospectors and we're, we're looking for it in all the wrong places. But then the, the, the amazing reversal is that when instead of seeking to please ourselves, grabbing the gold for ourselves, we live to please God, he inserts himself into our life seeking to please us. That's, that's what joy is. That's when the creator God says, I'm going to give you joy. Across every economic spectrum, across every variety of, of humanity, I can, as the creator God, give you joy when you live to give me joy. That's what pleasing him, worshiping him is all about. Well, you may say, okay, Solomon, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not really trying to seek joy from money or fame. That's not my thing. I seek joy by, uh, from my family. I seek joy from uh, you know, living a healthy life. Good for you. It sure seems more noble, doesn't it? Healthy living, family, instead of money and fame. Solomon, what do you have to say about that? Verse 3. A man may have a hundred children and live many years. Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, perhaps referring to someone who they're hardly sad to see him go, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It, the stillborn child, comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest or peace than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years, twice over, that's two thousand, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. In other words, we all end up in the grave. Life is short, and we all die. So, what about the proposal that family and good health is going to bring joy, meaning, satisfaction, and fill our lives with... He says, what if you had a hundred children? Now, manning a hundred-child daycare does not really 
speak happiness to most of us. But I think we get the uh, hyperbole, the, the literary exaggeration, especially as uh, very universally a large family in ancient times was the equivalent of a, a, a blessing from God. And it is. And uh, the Psalms speak of a full quiver of arrows, uh, a blessing indeed. But if you could have all the children you want, and, and I know many people struggle with not having children, if you could though, would you be happy? And it's saying, not necessarily. In fact, when, you're, when your relationship with God is in tatters or you know, family problems, yeah, just having the kids you want is no guarantee of happiness. What about health? What about health? There's, a, there's another perception that says, you know, as long as you have your health. And I, I get that because obviously when you struggle with your health you have chronic illness there's every reason that that joy is a tremendous challenge even as a follower of christ if you've if you've experienced a loss or you fear uh, imminent death of yourself or a loved one there's all kinds of reason why health is so important but does having health somehow bring instant happiness and and so again, with hyperbole, he says, what about if you didn't have to worry about death for 2,000 years? You just didn't have to didn't think about it. You, didn't have to, you had so many days left. And he's saying, no, even then. You would not be guaranteed any kind of happiness just because you would live a long time. There's a lot of very unhappy, healthy people. In fact, some people will, will pursue the, the fit lifestyle and it's really maybe more about physical image. And of course, that doesn't last. That's empty. Or so they can live long, but all we can do is maybe stretch the timeline. And you still don't know what kind of an accident or illness can afflict you. But even if you had a balanced view, hey, I just want to be, I want to be healthy. I want to be able to enjoy things. And I, I have self-control. You know, what if, what if the best balanced view of health was yours? Does that guarantee happiness? And said, we all go to the same place. We all have a funeral date. So really, he says, being stillborn is better than living without joy. Kind of like, wow. I guess it's painful to hear, but someone needed to say it. If you live chronically unhappy, you'd be better off not living. Now, that's, that's a depressing. I'm, God's not teaching that. He's saying that's how people feel. Solomon's not done. As we continue this chapter about emptiness, I think we need to stop and ask ourselves some questions about, you know, the Word of God is supposed to be a mirror. What is God asking us to think about? Am I seeking to fill my life with something that cannot satisfy? And let's just assume it's good things. Because so easily we get confused, distracted that good things, instead of being God's blessings, become God's substitutes. They are God's blessings. And we want to say they're God's blessings because that's the right thing that's what Christians say. But have they veered into the category of God substitute. Second question, am I experiencing symptoms 
of spiritual emptiness. What would a, what would a symptom be? Anger? Fear? Whatever, whatever, there's all kinds of fears. Dread? Envy? Conflicts? Really, anything that is self-focused is a symptom of emptiness. So we need to process these things personally as we read the rest of this chapter. Now, it, depending on your particular Bible text or edition, you, some, of, some of you may have, as I do, the rest of this chapter is written a little bit more in like poetic form because he's now going to make his point uh, not with uh, simple statements, but rather with metaphors, proverbs, and questions. The Bible uses both means. Sometimes we really need the simple statement, like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not. Or the way Paul, in his letters in the New Testament, will, he'll talk about doctrine in the first chapters, and then he says, now, this is the way you ought to live. You know, husbands love your wives, live at peace with one another, and all these kind of things. But, but sometimes, and especially Jesus modeled this so many times, that, that he, would, he would speak in parables, right? And he would have metaphors, and he would, he would sit just kind of obscure enough that we go, what does that mean? So let's, let's, let's approach that as we look at, at Solomon's next point, that not only does success without joy bring emptiness, but any human pursuit without God produces empty living. Verses 7, 8, and 9 describe the emptiness of discontent. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. One subject there, I think, which is the emptiness when we are discontent, particularly about material things. Um, it's not, this is not addressing evil people, you could say. It's not talking about evil things, the appetite, food, we all need it. But this is where everyone in, in, in you know, we live in good communities, you could say responsible people, trying to do the best for their family, working hard. And, but you know what we all have in common, whether we're believers or unbelievers, is this temptation to try to satisfy our appetites with the wrong things. And it all goes back to Adam and Eve, who had not even yet sinned, and who had in the garden everything that their bodies needed, everything their hearts desired was all around them and there for the picking. And all Satan had to do is point to the one thing they did not have. And the whole human race was affected. Because you've got to have the one thing that we don't have. And so now we all have the sinful nature Romans 5.12, in Adam all sinned. And it doesn't mean we are all just awful people. I'm, I'm always amazed at how the image of God shines through in good ways all around society. We, we, we get that. Yet we all are afflicted with 
the same uh, acquisition addiction. Verse 7, all man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. The, the word mouth refers to food, and food, in other words, you work for food. That's kind of like the classic key issue. You get, you get hungry and you need it over and over, but you could, you could add rent, mortgage, clothes, gas, transmissions, uh, driver's ed fees, and then more cars and more insurance, or, or whatever it might be. But eating is the main one, and you'd think you know, especially if, if you think back to some of those big holiday meals you might have enjoyed, you know, as you get to the end of that meal and the extra helpings and you've had the first piece of pie, you begin to tell yourself, there is actually no hunger left. I am, I am totally satisfied. Until four hours later, or at our house, there's this counter full with all the snacks and treats, and amazingly, it's like, but I still want that. Why is that? Our appetites never satisfied it's really a metaphor of how everything is materially get the new iphone 12 you get the new car you get the new clothes and within months there is something else we understand it do we address it Verse 8 does not change the subject, but it brings up the idea of, well, do the wise people avoid that? Does wisdom solve this? He says, what advantage does a wise man have? Who might Solomon be thinking of? <laughs> he was the wisest man ever. Was it good wisdom, godly wisdom? Did God give him wisdom? Absolutely, God gave him wisdom, and yet his own story is how even in his wisdom and seeking you know, pleasure from things that he says, my mind was always still, I was still thinking, right? It still left him empty. Second part of verse 8, he brings up the example of a poor man. What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? So, you know, it, 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 it's, again... Let's pick on, we can pick on the celebrities and say, oh yeah, they're, they're way overboard, they're self-indulgent, but when you read about a poor man, you go, well, I can kind of identify with that, you know, he's a poor man. Is he, is he a good poor man? Oh yeah, he knows how to conduct himself before others. He is well-behaved, he, he doesn't have a lot of enemies, he's, he's a good neighbor, he's the nice guy, he's good at relationships. What advantage? He's got the same problem. He's nice people. He's nice people. Open door is nice people. But you know what we have in common? This. This constant sense of temptation. Maybe, maybe this. And so verse 9. Now he, now he drops a good proverb of wisdom on us. Better the, what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. In other words... Seek to find enjoyment in what you have, not in what you don't have. So, so, so let your eyes see the, the groceries you can afford, the car you already drive, the spouse you married, the clothes and shoes in the closet, not the ones on the shiny rack, the friends you have, maybe right here in church and you already know their faults, right? Why long for, I'm going to be this popular person, I'm going to be in this circle. Do we seek contentment in 
what we already have. The idea is, throughout this passage, God gives joy. And so God can give us joy in the blessings that he allots to us. And we will not find joy from the blessings. We find joy from the God who gave the blessings. And so whether you're on the spectrum of the wisdom issue or the financial issue is actually irrelevant to your joy. But are you seeking it from a relationship with him? Because if not, verse 9 concludes, this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Verse 10, I think, explains why it's so empty. Whatever exists has already been named, and whatever man is has been known. No man can can contend with one who is stronger than he. Uh, this is, you know, this, the way he writes makes you slow down and say, what, what are you talking about? The subject of verse 10 is God. So after describing, you could say a whole act one, act two, and act three of how empty this is and how empty this is, now God appears on stage front and center because he's the only one who fits the description of verse 10. He's named everything, he knows everything, and no one can contend with the one who is mightier than they are. So something about the way life works here under the sun, here on planet Earth, is actually the exact way God had designed it to work. Who's going to contend with God and say, it shouldn't be this way? that everything is empty apart from God, and God says, oh, yes, it is that way in a sinful earth. Try to argue with God, verse 11. The more words, the less meaning, and how does that profit anyone? You know what the world is doing, basically, with the many words that you see on you know, blogs and books and editorials and talk shows or Facebook, wherever you find them? The, the world is trying to find an alternative way to explain this is how society would really turn out good if I've got the answer. Verse 11 is reminding us, no, you can talk and talk and talk. Every philosophical idea, every political idea, every religious idea, every idea you came up with will not explain the emptiness of man apart from God. We've got to find it here from the one. Who's going to contend and argue with the one who is stronger? So it takes us back to the main point that we got to live life grateful because life comes from God. We live it with God and we live it for God and that's when we experience joy. And so we better fear God. It is the only answer. God, not you, is the master of the universe. Pleasing God, not self, is the path to joy. The final verse uses two more questions to press home the point, really. For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? And who can tell him what will happen under the sun when he is gone? Rhetorical questions. They're written with an implied answer because there is someone who knows what is good. There is someone who knows what will happen 
on this earth under the sun after we're gone? And that answer is God. Who among men, though, knows what's truly good? Is it the wealthy, the famous, the healthy, the guy with the big family, the wise guy, the wise man, the poor man with good personality traits? He's listed all the, no, none of them have the answer to what is truly good. Because only God knows what's truly good, and it's to pursue God, fear him, and keep his commandments. And who knows what will happen under the sun when he's gone. This, so this is not talking about uh, who knows what happens after we die, heaven or hell. That's an important biblical subject, but that's not the subject here because it says, who knows what's going to happen here on earth under the sun? Only God does. The other thing you find in every blog and philosophy and idea and news feed is somehow that we feel we know that if you did this, then this would happen. This is what would fix this. There's this, there's this insatiable arrogance that says, we know what's going to happen. If you do it our way, this is what's going to happen. How did that work out in 2020? Who in 2019 would ever have said that nobody knew that? So who knows? What's the answer to that last question? Who knows what's going to happen under the sun? Let's start backing off and learn the lesson. We don't know. And so we're going to have to trust someone who does. And we're going to have to, we, have, we do have an answer. And, and we know the one who knows what is truly good. Let's seek his word to see how can we be rightly aligned with him so we are living in the confidence and in the joy that he gives no matter what happens under the sun. So let's return to our questions. Am I seeking to fill my life with something that cannot satisfy? What is it for you? Am I experiencing symptoms of spiritual emptiness? Who around me could maybe help me understand even what they're seeing? And one more question. How will I refocus on seeking joy from God alone in 2021? What, what will... If we've been finding emptiness that might be even producing crabbiness, <laughs> what's going to be different? What, what would change about our, our daily schedule? What would change? How would we understand and align ourselves under God better? What would it take? Your plan. But God's goals. How does the body of Christ fit into that? Because the, the, the answers are in the word of God. But there's an incredible thing that happens when you are with other people who are in the word of God. We suddenly, we suddenly like see it in, we see the plan of God in 3D, living color. Because now I'm not just looking at myself, but now I begin to see, boy, I see how this has worked in their life, and they're telling their story, and I don't have to go through this because they already did, and they taught me through it, and it's one of the reasons we really need one another. So what is my plan for 2021? I close with a uh, verse from Jeremiah 2. 
The reason why different parts of the Bible agree with each other, even though they're written years apart, and uh, different authors, different cultures, is because they're all inspired by God. We realize that, right? Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two sins. One, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Here's two. And have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jeremiah 2.13 captures what Solomon is telling us in Ecclesiastes. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. They've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are reminded again that when we look to self, we find emptiness. When we look to you, we find living water. When we look inside for change and try harder, we have a series of failures. When we submit to you and ask you to work in our life, it can be painful. It can be transparent and honest, but you do real and genuine transformation. And so I pray that in the coming days and whatever they hold for any of us, we look to you and experience the joy and the, the life that you have planned for us as we seek to know and please you first of all. In Jesus' name, amen.